welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Schell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're in a series on the Holy Spirit. I don't have any particular list. I'm just marching through. And um, in a sense, letting the Lord teach me and, and just trying to, to put on paper, to put down some of the things that I've learned uh, that he's teaching even now about the Holy Spirit. I think we need the power of the Holy Spirit now more than ever, don't you? I mean, that's, that, you could just say that any time, I suppose. But I think in this day and age, I, I think it's just as obvious as it could be. We really do need the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of God has been given to us. But it's something you learn. It's something you learn to walk in. It's something you learn to, you, 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 you understand and you know how to make part of your life. And so that's what we're doing. We're going through the Bible. We've talked about who is the Holy Spirit. We've talked about what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about... What difference does that make? What did Jesus do so that we, he could dwell within us? And I'm teaching now through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14. I'm just planning on going through those three chapters. Why those three chapters? Those are the sweet spot in the Bible. Boy, that's the, the place that talks about what the church does when it gathers and how the Holy Spirit ministers through the church. And I, I want to retell that. I want to relook at it. Because this is a passage that has been translated in such a way as to sound like you should not expect certainly this gift and this gift and this gift. And then, then we're told that the last gift at the end of the line is the least of the gifts and speaking in tongues. And so you have this sort of ranking system and this little, little top ten of Paul puts out there. And, and we're told those kinds of things. I want to show you what I think it says. I was able to really spend two weeks doing what I'm doing. I had to retranslate the whole thing. And I want to retell it to you. I want you to hear afresh. We're going to go through chapter 12, verse 27, right on down to 13, verse 3. We'll hear what he says, and we'll let that lesson hit our hearts. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And Christ has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Would you, would you say that? First apostles, first apostles. second prophets, second prophets. Third, teachers. third teachers. And I'll just keep going. Then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Are, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. Would you say, I show you a still more excellent way? Now, he's going to show them this still more excellent way, and, and I'm going to read down through verse 3. He's, 
going to show him what he thinks that is. It, he knows that is. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm what? Yeah. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, would you read this last line? It profits me nothing. All right, let's look at our study. Guided by love. A beautiful gift can be spoiled if it's, if it's given with the wrong attitude. And that's especially true when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. Something that was pure and meant to heal, comfort, or bring joy when it was sent from heaven can be delivered in such a way that it does just the opposite. It wounds, disturbs, or leaves someone sad. I, won't, I certainly don't want any hands, but you've probably had people minister to you at times which brought great comfort, great, great healing, and you may have had people minister to you at other times when it didn't. It left you sad or troubled or confused. Uh, just, well, I'll just leave it right there. Move on. Whatever comes from God is perfect. But he often delivers his gifts through imperfect people. And that's where trouble can enter in. A human messenger can take his perfect gift and deliver it with anger, fear, or pride. Or the messenger might edit the message using some of God's words and some of their own. And the result is no longer what God wanted. It's become what the messenger wanted. Now, I'm not going to amplify. I, don't, I, could, I could do this so easily, but so could you. Uh, if you've been around Christianity at all, if you've been around Pentecostal Christianity, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, then let's just move on. <laughs> when a person repents and places their faith in Jesus Christ, he or she becomes righteous before God. But that person's physical body with its passions, appetites, and subconscious attitudes doesn't disappear. It still tries to influence everything we do and will continue until we are given new obedient bodies at the resurrection. It's interesting to me that one of the teachings that's gone around, and it, it always cycles, I've argued with numerous generations on this, there are those who say, look, the Bible says that we are a new creature. All things become uh, new. Old things have passed away. So everything in me is brand new. And I, I had one gentleman who uh, is, was in our church, and we, he and I just have agreed to disagree on this. Uh, but we had this, this discussion, and I said, well, then, then I must not be saved. Because I said, I've got stuff and attitudes and times passions or fears I have stuff that's going on I said where does that come from if I'm all new and then he kind of looked a little blank and I said demons he said yeah demons <laughs> so I guess I, I don't look you got to get this straight in your head and if you do a lot of things make sense when you Repent and surrender to Jesus Christ. You become righteous. I'll, I'll show it to you more here. You become righteous. Your spirit is joined to the Lord. You, you become, you become uh, 
There's no barrier of sin between you, your spirit and God. You understand? We have full access, and you do. No matter how bad your week was, kind of thing, you still have access to him because of what? The righteousness of Christ. It's been given to you. But we live in a body that isn't changed. Have you noticed yours? Have you noticed mine? You know, I mean, you're going to... You can look, you can see with your flesh. Don't you have days when you're tired? When you're distracted or, or your temper rises, uh, fear can, can grip you. You'll say things afterwards. You go, why did I say that? I'm not the only one in the room, right? <laughs> Where does that come from? Because I love Jesus. And you see, if I don't get this straight in my brain, I can, I can have this conclusion. Well, then I must not be a Christian. I mean, that was, in effect, the question I was asking my friend. I said, well, where does it come from? I, I, didn't, I didn't agree with him, so I didn't mean the question sincerely. But I was saying, then, where does this come from? Because I have these things. I said, don't you? Well, yeah. And I said, then, where does it come from? And Paul tells us. He says it comes from our flesh. And by that he means literally from your body. From the, from the stuff you're made out of, including your subconscious. Those things don't change. They will at the resurrection. There'll come a moment when we die before that happens. When it falls off and our spirit goes right on into the presence of the Lord. And we, we are in a spiritual body with him. Um, and it's a real, I mean, you can literally recognize people who are, are with him right now. So I don't fully understand that. But your resurrection body someday will be a spiritual body. And what he means by that is not that it, you, you see through it or it's sort of vaporous. He, what he means by that, it's obedient to the spirit. Your body will no longer wrestle with you. It will no longer produce a, a adrenaline and fear and anger and lust. That garbage won't be there, but you'll have a real solid physical body that never gets sick or diseased or, or injured again. Doesn't that sound good? Yes. That's the promise. That is, a, that is what, what is promised to us. So look, at, look back here with me. When a person repents, that person's physical body with its passions, appetites, and subconscious attitudes doesn't disappear. It still tries to influence everything we do. So you'll find your spirit wants to do one thing, your body tends to want to do another. And here's how Paul describes this tension between a believer's spirit and body. Would you read this with me? If Christ is in you... Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Let's read that one more time. If the Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Your, our body, our physical body, dead. What does that mean? It's still under judgment. It's, that's why it dies. That's why that stuff happens. And the spirit he's referring to is you, your spirit. You, and that, that's who you are. You are a spirit. I am a spirit. So here he says, you've got, you've got this spirit that's righteous because of faith in Christ, stuck in a body that's still got this rebellious nature. Kind of resonates, doesn't it? 
Doesn't that sort of feel like your experience? He pictures a renewed human spirit living inside an old rebellious body and says that God gave us the Holy Spirit to provide the power to put to death the deeds of that body. He's explaining to us why believers still have to wrestle with the passions and attitudes that come from this body, from their body. He says our flesh rebels against the way, ways of God. So if we're not careful, it will pollute everything we do, listen, including the way we minister the gifts of the Spirit. This is where that stuff comes from. You've got a, a person who loves the Lord. And they've got a person, but their body is rebellious. And so when even in bringing the gifts of the spirit, that flesh can seep into it. And that's where, that's really the point of maturity or someone you trust as a prophet or as a, as a minister of some kind. What you're trusting is their, is their ability to separate their flesh from the spirit. An, an, an immature person, an undeveloped person spiritually can't separate that. So they stand up and start to bring a word. They go to somebody and say, start praying for them. And, and they let their temper or their fear or their ambition or their desire to manipulate this person into something they think is good. And they let it come right into the word. And so, so now we've got a clouded word. We've got a word that isn't pure. We've got a word that, that that's, it sounds like it's supposed to be God, but it isn't all God. If, so, if, so if you and I are going to deliver one of God's gifts to someone else or receive a gift for ourselves, we must learn to recognize the difference between the voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of our flesh. Somebody say amen to that. That was just good. We must learn to filter out wrong thoughts and pass on or receive. See, this is even true when it's you and God. When you're listening, you have to go, was, you know, what voice was that? Is that God or is it my flesh? Because the flesh talks too. And learning to separate which is which. Learning to, to test the thing and all of that to, so that I can separate God's word from my own flesh. That's the key. We must learn to filter out wrong thoughts and pass on or receive only those we believe to be from the Lord. Which raises the question, how do I know when God is guiding me to say or do something? And what signs should I look for that would alert me that a word or action is not from God, but has been produced by my own flesh? In the passage we're studying today, Paul answers those questions with one word. What's the one word? It is love. He tells the Corinthians, check your heart before you say or do anything on God's behalf. And especially before you minister, one of the graces, and I keep calling it that because the word is charismata. The word charis is grace, favor, kindness, and so the, the charismata simply are graces, the graces of the Holy Spirit. If God is guiding you, you will feel his love for those to whom you are ministering, and that love will tell you when to speak or act and when to wait. It will control the tone and manner in which you do what you do. And Paul says these things using strong, beautiful language. 
His words leave no room for doubt. Without love, nothing we do pleases the Lord. Would you read that? Without love, nothing we do pleases the Lord. So let's listen again to what he told the Corinthians. And then let's make a fresh commitment to let love guide us. These verses have been the subject of much controversy. And that should come as no surprise. Because they're usually translated in a way that makes them sound as if Paul suddenly contradicts himself. No sooner does he finish explaining that God places a wide variety of ministries in the body of Christ. And that every member is vitally important to the success of the whole. Then he seems to turn at verse 28 and rank those ministries and graces of the Spirit in a list that starts at the most important and runs down to the least important. I'm going to open this again and just remind you. How often have you heard the phrase, well, speaking in tongues is the least of the gifts? How many have heard that phrase? Yeah. If you haven't, you have now. It's, uh, and it's drawn from right here, this passage. And the idea being, well, Paul goes down this list, you see. He says, uh, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And so in their minds, what he's doing is he's going down a list from most important to least important. Okay? So first prophets, I mean apostles. So if you're really hot stuff, you're an apostle. And my goodness, there are some of those. Second prophets. Third teacher. So we're working our way right on down. Then miracles. Powers is literally the word. And then gifts of healing, helps, administration, and what's the last in the list? Tongues. Tongues. Well, there it is, see? Least of the gifts. And then, then Paul, the way this is translated, says, all are not apostles, all are not prophets, all are not. And then the last one he names is what? It's, well, it's actually interpretation of tongues. So it's the least of the gifts. So Paul has spent the whole first part of this chapter saying, well, now, the church is like a body. And it's got eyes and ears and mouth and feet and hands. And we're all different. And God wants it that way. He brought you all together. And he stuck you in this body. And he gives you different callings and different gifts. You're all different. But every one of you is needed. Come on. Even the ones you'd cover up with your clothes and you can't see those organs inside your body. If they weren't there, you'd die. Ah, but here's the most important. Apostle, prophet, teacher. Go right on down the list. And you don't want these ones at the bottom. They're no good. You see what I mean by contradicts himself? And that is the way it's translated. That's why you come, you, I mean, if you read it, people, I don't, I, a translator has an opinion. The person who's reading the Greek has an opinion of what ought to get said. Me included. So, what, so when you're translating this thing, you tend to slant it the way you think it ought to come out. They're not doing it maliciously. They're trying to do the right thing, but they're doing the right thing in their own mind. And sometimes the Bible says stuff we don't like. 
Sometimes the Bible says stuff that goes against our, what, we want, what we want it to say or makes us look bad. And the real integrity and courage of a translator is, will I put down what it really says, even when it makes me look bad? And I think this is what's happened here. I think people didn't want it to say what it says. So what I've done is I've translated it, but I, but I put it in a paraphrase. So I'm going to just let you hear, as best I know how, what Paul said in this passage. Let's go back to our text. Then to make matters even worse, it's as though Paul tells us to pursue only the ones at the top of the list, the, the greater gifts, we'll hear, we've heard that, and ignore those at the bottom. And if that were what he actually said, then I suppose we should all try to be apostles. Prophets or teachers. No one should desire to participate in lesser ministries like helps, administration, or speaking in tongues. And that does seem to be the way it's worked out. But thankfully, these verses can be translated in a manner that is consistent with what Paul taught earlier. Here is a careful paraphrase of these verses based on my own translation. And I'm not boasting, I'm just, I'm just owning up to it. It's my translation I'm working from. Here's what I think the Corinthians heard Paul say. Verse 27, 28. Let me read it one more time so you've got it in your ear. Now you are, says my Bible, Christ's body and individually members of it. And God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps administration, various kinds of tongues. Let's see what I think he said. And you Corinthians are a body of Christ. He says that. He says, you Corinthians are a body of Christ. Every place else in that chapter, he put a definite article in front of the word body. Only here he didn't. Now, some of them say, well, he meant to. No, he didn't. He, 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 listen to what he's saying to them. Now, you Corinthians are a body of Christ. You are one congregation among all the many congregations around the world. So think of yourself as Christ's body in that city. And because you are a body of Christ, all the principles I've been teaching you about the church being similar to a human body apply to you as well. So, so brothers and sisters, there's a church, there's, there's, we are part of the church in federal way or Seattle, or wherever you live. They're, they're, we're, we're part of, of, of the body of Christ in this community. You see it? So the principles of that body are true for us. If you look at what God has already done in Corinth, you will see that he has placed among you a wide variety of ministries. Just look at your history. First, he sent apostles to you. I, I was the apostle who founded that church. But Apollos and Peter came there as well. And then he raised up men and women who are capable of bringing genuine prophecy so that through them he could edify, exhort, and comfort you as needed. They were especially important in the early years because you did not have my letters or any other Christian scriptures. And then thankfully, there were some learned Jews and proselytes in Corinth, who became followers of Jesus so that after I left, there were teachers who could open the Old Testament scriptures and teach you about the Messiah Jesus. 
and the mercy and holiness of the God of Israel. The way the thing is translated and the way it's been often taken is that Paul is ranking them in order of importance. I'm suggesting to you He's not ranking them in order of importance. He's ranking them chronologically. He's ranking them right on down as they came to the city of Corinth. First came the apostles. He came. And Paulus and Peter were there too. We know that. He says so. And then there were prophets that were raised up who could speak the word of the Lord. Then there were teachers. Who would the teachers be? Well, I can guarantee you it wasn't a bunch of those, 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 those Greek folks that came out of the temple of Aphrodite. I mean, what do they know? They can't teach anybody. But you have converted Jews and proselytes who've been in the word of God in the, in the Old Testament scriptures for, for years and, and know and understand the scriptures they're looking at. They're your teachers. You were blessed with a number of teachers. And here's some of the ones that are mentioned, I think. Aquila and Priscilla. Do you recognize those names? Yes. Crispus. Stephanus. And Sosthenes. That Sosthenes is so much fun. When, when Paul was there in, in Corinth, he, uh, he, he established a church. And after about a year and a half or so, um, church is going strong, but they had a, they had a riot. And uh, everybody's dragged in front of the, uh, the, the government seat the, out in the open. Place. I think it's called a bema. And the proconsul, the Roman proconsul of that area, of that area of Greece, uh, is seated there. And, and the Jews are, gonna, are, 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 trying, are trying to get a, a, a case against uh, these Christians, Paul and everybody. And, and so they put them in front of him and and uh, say that, you know, begin to accuse him. And he doesn't care. And people, uh, and, and he, re- he rebuffs Sosthenes. This Sosthenes is the one who's there accusing Paul. He's the leader of the pack. He's the synagogue leader. So there he is saying all this stuff about Paul. Well, when he was rejected, the, the, the synagogue, all the, all the Jewish, attacked Sosthenes and beat him up. And um, the Roman Pope Council could care less. They're probably pleased with the whole thing. And then you open the book of Corinthians. In fact, let's do it. I mean, if you've got, you've got Corinthians, just go back to chapter 1. Look at this. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and who? Sosthenes, our brother. Isn't that cool? Here's the synagogue leader, got beat up in front of everybody, and somehow became a Christian. So is he going to be a teacher? Yeah, he's going to be a good teacher. The guy's got the word in him. From, he's memorized huge chunks of the Bible. He's, it's in him deep. And now he knows who the Messiah is. So he's going to teach the word. Each of these had a solid background of the Bible and therefore were able to teach large number of Greeks who flooded into the church. They kept everyone focused in the right direction. So to those three ministries, apostles, prophets, and teachers, God gave the greatest amount of authority and visibility. 
But he also placed other ministries among you, says Paul, that draw attention to the person who performs it. He's kind of going down this whole visibility thing and, and, and the order. For example, there are those who pray with great power and see miracles. And notice what I said here. And demonic deliverance take place. Now the word is powers. And it's translated as miracles, but the word is powers. And I just want you to know that one of the things that was marked the early church for centuries was their ability to cast out demons. I, I got a book here. I'm just going to read you just a little snippet. It's called Christianizing the Roman Empire by Ramsey McMullen. He's not a Christian. He's just a, he's just a historian. And he's trying to figure out how come this group of, of apostles and, and prophets, this ragtag bunch of, of Jewish people, uh, believing in this Messiah, this crucified Jesus, suddenly became the religion of the entire Roman Empire in 400 years? How did that happen? That's, it's, what, what, what would cause that? Well, here was one of the things he, was say, he said. He said, he's talking about the, the, for, for all those times, Christians are persecuted. They don't dare come out in public much. I mean, you know, out in big open things. But here's what he said. As Christians declaring themselves in that, in that role to the public, uh, preaching, holding meetings or the like, they were very, in very little evidence. He says there's not evidence of Christians out holding big rallies because they're going to get killed. <laughs> Good reason. They preferred to keep apart and to keep others from approaching, but simply as neighbors, they were naturally everywhere. Being excluded from the normal social gatherings, their points of contact with non-Christians lay quite inevitably at street corners, or at places of employment, or in the working quarters of, of dwellings, just as one particular fellow says. In such settings, if the subject of religion arose, it would be aspects the aspects most commonly talked about. And given the concentration of ancient religion on the relief of sickness or deformity, he's saying those ancient people had such a focus on sickness and, and injuries and deformities. An exchange of views might not most, would most likely begin with the wonderful cures wrought by this or that divine power. The, the, the Romans, the Greeks, all of these people believed and they would take their people to Asclepius, you know, in, in, in Greece. You'd have this snake god, you know, who, who was healing. That's the one you see the snakes on the stick when you see our, our medical symbols in the United States or around the world. You know, those snakes on that pole. Um, that's Asclepius they're referring to. Anyway, so they've, they've had it. You know, they'll, they'll all talk about it. And then of, it says... The Christ, the, of all worships, the Christian best and most particularly advertised its miracles by driving out spirits and laying on of hands. Reports would spread without need of preaching throughout all the places so contemptuously cataloged by this particular opponent of Christianity. What did they do? In their workplaces, on street corners, uh, in, 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 in neighborhoods, they, people would talk about their sicknesses and their needs and how they would take their, themselves to their, to their Roman gods or their Greek gods and, you know, they look for help. But these Christians would say, well, our Jesus can heal. And then they would pray and lay hands or they would cast out a devil 
and it would go. One of the things that um, we had, uh, Caleb Brown, you recall, with, uh, with our ministry training institute, doing what Jesus did, he was telling me privately that they've been in India with uh, this message of doing what Jesus did. And they've had hundreds of thousands of people receive the Lord. And what they've done is they run those little six-week training things like you went through. But they run them in some place. And then in the evening, everybody's assignment is to simply walk out into the villages that were all around. And you just come up to a hut. And you lean in the door and you say, is there anybody here who's sick or hearing voices? And there often are. And then in the name of Jesus Christ, you command that devil to go. Or you lay hands on the the sick and they're healed. And hundreds of thousands have come to the Lord. Our president told me the other, not too long ago, a few months ago, he said, we've had 10,000 churches Congregation just from that ministry joined Foursquare. How many did I say? Yeah, I can hardly believe when I say stuff like this. 10,000. What do you do? You lean in the door and you say, what? Anybody here is sick or hearing voices? What this man's telling us is we've been doing that for, for 2,000 years. That's been our MO. But just as human, the human body has organs that are not visible when you look at a person, yet are perform vital functions. Now, Paul's working his way down this. God gives the body of Christ people who minister in ways that the, most of the church doesn't see. For example, there are those who care for widows and orphans, lead house churches or prayer meetings. There are those who do powerful intercession from their bedside. And those who do all the necessary things to prepare for special events. You will also observe that God has placed, says Paul, a wide variety of ministries in your worship services. In any particular gathering, the Holy Spirit will distribute his graces to whomever he wishes. For example, he might ask two or three to speak in tongues loud enough for everyone to hear. Verse 29 and 30. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? Says mine. All do not workers of miracles. All don't have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Let's see what we th- I think it says. God didn't appoint everyone in the church to be an apostle. All he says in the Greek is not all apostles. Not all po- prophets. There is no such thing in the Greek as a question mark. And so you assume it. You, you guess it. And, and it doesn't matter, really, the meaning but I don't think it says it. Paul says, I, he appointed these, and then he says, but he didn't appoint all apostles. Everybody wasn't made an apostle. Even though everyone is capable, or a prophet, even though, even though everyone is capable of prophecy, when God asks them to do so, he'll say that later. He didn't appoint everyone to be a teacher. Though hopefully in time, all of you will grow to the point where you're able to teach others. Nor does everyone in the church see amazing miracles or healings take place when they pray, though Jesus promised that potential to all of us. And during a particular, during a particular worship service, God doesn't ask everyone to pray or praise aloud in a language they never learned. In fact, there should never be more than two or three such expressions in any one service, says Paul. 
Nor does he ask everyone to interpret what was said in, the, in those unknown languages so that you can all be blessed. Paul isn't ranking them. He isn't saying this is the good stuff and this is the junk at the bottom. You know, God made some really good gifts and some dumb ones. You don't want the dumb ones. You just want the good ones. I mean, that is ridiculous logic. It is completely against the way the Bible thinks. Verse 31. As I mentioned to you in the opening to this letter, you Corinthians all have the graces of the spirit, the charismata, being expressed in your services. But the attitude with which you minister them is very wrong. You jealously compete with one another, trying to be the person who brings the most impressive manifestation. Now, mine says this. Earnestly desire the greater gifts. Yours says that too, right? Something like that. The thing is, the word doesn't mean earnestly desire. It's, it's zelao. And the word, we get jealous from it. In fact, Paul, just a few verses, will say, love is not zeloi, jealous. So Paul says to them, you are, you are jealously competing with one another. The word means to vie with one another. It's, it's usually negative, almost always negative. And Paul says, look, at here. I'm going to tell you, here's the deal, Corinthians. You, zelao, you zelute, you are Competing, competing with each other. You are pursuing these things with, it, with, it, with, a, with an aggressive quality to it. But I'm going to show you a better way. Let me read. And though I am glad that you are zealous for the things of the Spirit, I am now going to point out to you a much better way of deciding how and when to participate in these graces, these charismata. Because that's the word he uses. They're not gifts. He says... You zealously pursue the, the greater gifts. I want to show you a better way. It all comes down to identifying your motive. Ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Because your motive, if your motive's right, God will be pleased. But if it's wrong, whatever you do will be of no spiritual benefit to you at all. And the only right motive for doing any form of ministry is that God's selfless love impels you to serve that person or group. No matter how spiritual or dramatic a manifestation may be, if it is not done with the right attitude, it is spiritually worthless, at least as far as you are concerned. Think of what he said. He said, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am what? Sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. Well, if, because if, you, if you've done it without love, nobody's, you're not going to interpret it. You're just going to be noise. One point, he says, you're a barbarian to others. They, they don't know what word you're saying. And then he, and then he says, even though I, I know all knowledge and, I, and I, I, have, I, have, I prophesy and I know the deep mysteries and, and, I, and I can move mountains with my prayers, he says... But if you, I have not love, and then he, he says, I am nothing. He doesn't say that you didn't do any good. But he said, you aren't anything. No matter how spiritual dramatic it may be, 
If it's not done in the right attitude, it is spiritually worthless. Even if others are helped, God knows why you did what you did. And he's not pleased because his goal for you is that you become like Jesus. And what you're doing isn't like Jesus at all. I think the picture is that these Corinthians are competing with one another to see who can have the most spiritual, the most, the most important thing in a, in, a, in a prayer meeting, in a service. Oh yeah, I'll top that. You think you can prophesy? Watch me. And they're prophesying at each other and they're standing up because they want to be recognized and they want to be honored as prophets and this kind of thing. They're, they're, they're drawing attention to themselves with the way they use the gifts. And Paul is saying, look, even if you brought a great prophecy, even if you, even if you opened the deepest mysteries in the Bible and you, you taught, he said, if you do it with that kind of pride, with that sort of ambition, with that sort of self-promotion, in God's thinking, you're a failure. What you said may have been true, others may have been helped by it, but you have failed badly. And what you, uh, this is true for all the graces of the Spirit, whether it be tongues, prophecy, profound words of knowledge, or miracle-producing prayers of faith. It's even true of extravagant giving or martyrdom. I mean, you could, you could have given everything you had, and, and people did some of that, and given it to the poor. But if you did it for the wrong reason, if you did it so that you were proud and, and people honored you, that would be wrong. There is an example of someone doing that in the Bible. Can you think of their names? And, and an, Ananias and Sapphira struck dead. Remember that? They gave away a whole bunch of stuff and they did it for an impure reason. And then, and then he says, or, or you could, even if I give my body to be burned, and frankly, that was happening to Christians and it would happen. It had, it had happened uh, uh, when Paul wrote this. It wouldn't be long before Nero was burning Christians in his gardens. I'm just sorry to say that. In other words, everything a believer does in ministry must be motivated and guided by love. When you're, al- when you're alone, Paul would say, you can focus on edifying yourself. But when other people are involved, don't say anything or do anything until you feel God's love for them and he shows you when and how to help. Why love? Throughout this passage, Paul is talking about one particular kind of love. The Greek word he uses is agape. It points to the selfless kind of love that Jesus showed us in everything he did. But above all, when he willingly died for us on the cross, the word agape was not in common use uh, when, when, with, when Christianity began. It was kind of a forgotten word. There's a number of Greek words. There's phileo, there's uh, eros, uh, there is um, storge. There's, there's different words for love. They all have a different meaning. But this word agape wasn't a common word at all. It had been kind of shuffled out. But Christians are trying to do is describe this Jesus 
who came from heaven, left all of his glories there, all of his privileges, all of his rights as the, as the, as the, as the divine son of God, came down to earth, was born in a stable, and, and, and went through life, suffering everything we, we, we do, and then finally crucified for us, willingly offers himself to this horror so that we can be saved. What word do you use for that? How do you describe that kind of love? I mean, phileo, friendship love, that ain't going to do it. We're not going to even touch arrows. And, and, and storge, family-like love? Well, you know, like fathers and mothers and... No, I didn't do it either. So he took agape and they dusted it off. This is our word. This describes Jesus. That's what Paul keeps using right here, that word. This kind of love is not based on a, in an emotion. It's a choice someone makes to lay aside their own rights and needs and to care for someone else's needs. And as we've heard today, Paul made an astounding claim about the attitude we must have if we're going to minister to anyone. He said, unless this love is present in us and guides us to do whatever we do, God considers our words and actions worthless in terms of his goal for our lives. In other words, loveless ministry shows that we're headed in the wrong direction. We're becoming less like Jesus, not more like him. God's primary concern for you and me is to conform us, to work inside us until we genuinely have a heart like Jesus. Listen, would you read this with me? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Paul is telling us that before God created the universe, he saw everything that would happen. That's the foreknew part. So the picture is, he hasn't made the universe, he hasn't made any, any of that. But before he did, he said, whom he foreknew. God being God could look into the future, and see everything that would happen. And every person. He foreknew you. Amen. He foreknew me. And you'll notice he waited for us. Yes. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. No, that's what it means. He foreknew. And then it says, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And the word predestined doesn't mean... He picked out one person and said, I want you saved and not you. The word is prohorizo. It, it, it comes from the word horizon. He drew a line around. He, de he defined the boundaries. So he knew who would come. And then before that, he made this decision. All of you who, who are going to come to me, when I'm done with you, you're going to look like Jesus. That's what he decided, that we would be conformed to what? The image of his son. The, the, the number one goal for you isn't like, do you, how many gifts do you have? How, many, how much 
How much influence? How many souls have you won even? I mean, that's all beautiful. Those are, those are not wrong things, but that's not the number one goal for you. The number one goal for you and for me is that God is at work inside us, conforming us into the image of his son. God knew that Adam and Eve would sin, but he also knew that in every generation there would be men and women who would repent and trust him to give them mercy. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And he decided way back then, before he even made anything, to send his son to save us and the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. Until there were billions of people who were as pure and loving as his beautiful son. And he also decided this. That someday he would resurrect us so that, all, so that we would even look like his son. The day will come when you shine like, this, like, like, a, like a star with his glory. Now if that's God's goal for us. If that's our destiny, then trying to compete with one another or proudly displaying how spiritual we are completely misses the point. What matters, what lasts, is the Christ-like love that's being formed inside us. Would you stand with me? If, you, if you're comfortable doing it, if you're not comfortable, just stay seated, please. Can you see how far away that is from ranking the gifts? I didn't go through all the explanations, probably went through more than I should have as it was. But I just want you to know that what, what, I, what, I, just, what I just narrated to you but I do think that's what Paul says. And I can tell you why and point by point. I didn't stretch anything or twist anything. In fact, I didn't have to. What I had to do is unstretch and untwist things. And just let it say what it says in a natural way. And that's the message. Paul is trying to point out to them how beautiful God makes the body of Christ putting in that body all these gifts and all these abilities, some real visible and, and some hidden and quiet, some a prayer warrior at a bedside, somebody an apostle, marching into the city and taking it for Jesus. But they're all part of the body of Christ. They all belong. They're all valued. And in God's thinking, there isn't a... A better and a worse. He doesn't think like that. There isn't a rank. There isn't a top ten. Everything God does is beautiful. Everything God makes is just right. It does exactly what he made it for. Every gift is designed to do a certain thing. And it does that thing. It's not a, a ranking. There isn't good stuff and bad stuff. Not when it comes from a perfect creator. Do you understand? And then, he, then, he, then he, Paul says, says to us, please stop trying to compete with each other. Try, stop trying to zealously go after the, the big stuff and show off in front of people. Stop that. He says, here's the deal. What God really cares about, what he's really interested in for you, is that you become 
full of the love of Jesus Christ. That you care about others. That, you, that, you, that your whole heart and longing is to, is to love people. Because when you're doing that, you're like Jesus. And that's what he really cares about. Yes, it'll involve gifts. And you can do all of those things. But don't compete. Those are tools in your toolbox. Those are gifts he's given you so you can help people. Not look good. Is this making sense? It's a beautiful passage. It's totally consistent with what Paul's been saying all along. And with Paul himself, one of the questions I ask you at the end of this is, I'm asking you for examples in the Bible. Where do you see people who selflessly show this kind of love? There's a, you know, you can find it all the way through the Bible. There's some beautiful examples of this Christ-like love. But I'll tell you, one of the most profound is Paul himself. He made a statement in Romans. He said this. He said, if I could... This, this, is beyond, this is beyond comprehension. He, says, he said, if, if, if my going to hell would save my Jewish brothers and sisters, he said, I'd do it. And he'd already been to heaven and knew how real it was. Can you imagine that? That is beyond mine. I, I, I don't say that. I don't, it's beyond what anything I could conceive of. That's how much he loved people. So, Lord, as we have our Apostle Paul teaching us and drawing us and saying, we're to, we're to be like you. We're to have hearts full of your love, hearts full of your kindness. And that the way you evaluate us and the way you, you, you prize us and, and, and look at us is so different that we look at each other. We're comparing, we're competing, we're insecure, we're needing to promote ourselves. Forgive us for this stuff. And we would simply ask you, Lord, to fill us with your love and teach us how to use the gifting and the abilities you've given us to serve, to bring others to you and to heal, comfort people. Help us, Lord, have that heart. We receive our apostles' teaching and want that for us. We ask it and believe for it. In the powerful name of Jesus. If you agree with my prayer, would you say amen? Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.